0: which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our Thousand Tiny Steps. Hey everybody, Barbara Peacons here, beginning episode 55 of Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm in my new office again for the next episode of season six. So as I begin, as always, I like to sort of catch up on current events. One of the blessings other than this amazing office of the McGregor's living in England is that I've become friendly with Mark. Margaret is one of Virginia's really good friends. I might have spoken of her before. She's my next author I need to get to know really well book-wise. We've become friendly and it's nice. As I've said before, I love meeting new people. But she had some sort of party where there was a pound cake contest. And so I have this beautiful piece of pound cake, which I'm going to be staring at longingly while I'm talking. It was waiting for me here on the desk, which is really, really nice. September 9th today. So I'll start off with Gracie has come home from her cruise, which was nice. She was home a week ago. And the day after she got home, Kenny flew to Florida because his mom had a stroke. She had been on Coumadin for a long time because she had atrial fibrillation, which is a heart arrhythmia in the atrium. And blood thinners prevent you from having a stroke. And once she realized that if she went off the Coumadin, then she could you know, pass away that that might be better. And so that's exactly what she did. She was about two weeks just in bed, comfy, not eating or drinking, just fully but surely leaving this world. So she died yesterday, September 8th. A little interesting coincidence, she died at 1 p.m. here and Queen Elizabeth died at 1 p.m. in England on the same day. Sort of a big day to pass away, I guess. Although, all in all, at the end of the day, two dead bodies in body bags. I know that sounds harsh, but we put so much importance on the physical reality of our existence. When really what's important is your heart, mind, and soul. You know, what's inside you, the kind of person you are, your hopes and dreams, and what you share. And Grammy Babe was a pretty amazing woman. Grew up in Harrisburg area, as did Papa Gordy. And that's where Kenny grew up, outside of Harrisburg in Camp Hill. She raised her kids there. She lost her mother at a very young age to breast cancer. So she spent most of her mothering years herself without her own mother to lean on. Which, knowing how much I've leaned on my mother, I think that would be incredibly difficult. That would, I think, make me sad. So I have a lot of respect for her in that regard. What I love most about her is she was incredibly accepting of me when Kenny and I got together. You know, anytime there's divorce and second wives and second families and all, those things can be tricky for families, but she was a firm believer that her children should be happy. And so for a long time, Kenny and I were very happy. And Molly and Gracie had so much fun visiting Grammy Babe and Papa Gordy. It was wonderful times. She also got to meet Jack, which was amazing. We went to visit her. We went to Disney. Jack was five weeks, and it was one of those things where we thought she might not live much longer. So we jumped in the car and drove down to Florida with a teeny tiny five-week-old baby, and we visited her, and we brought Jack, and she got to hold him and touch him and hear him cry and listen to him poo, and she loved it. She, her response was, oh my gosh, I never thought I'd hear a baby cry again. You know, like It was just a wonderful Such a wonderful experience for her. So I'm glad that we did that. Kenny's gone down a couple of times to see her. And I'm incredibly glad that he is down there now. You know, he's worried, of course, because it's, you know, I'm a lone jack. But I have good family support. Gracie has tons of childcare friends that love to babysit. I'm doing okay. I'm doing fine. But, you know, shout out to Grammy Babe for a 95-year life well-lived. Bobby, especially, Kenny's sister is struggling. She's the one that really took care of Grammy Babe. In the latter years of her life, she... She and her husband Bob spent half the year in Florida to be near Grammy and and Bobby would visit her every day. And it was really her lifeline for a long time. I think these next few days and weeks will be tricky for Bobby, I'm gonna get teary-eyed now. It's one more connection. So Molly was named after Grammy Babe. Her name is Mary Elizabeth. She grew up Mary Elizabeth And Molly was Mary Elizabeth Banzoff. She was called Babe. Her nickname was Babe, Babe Banzoff. And that's what she went by. That was her nickname. She was never called Mary Elizabeth. And Molly wasn't either. Molly was called Molly. So the two Mary Elizabeths are in heaven now together. I hope they're connecting, which I'm sure they are. But I certainly wish they were still here. The next thing, between last episode and this, we went to New York City. So while we were there, we saw all these people waiting for Harry Styles. He was playing the next night in Madison Square Garden, and my picture is right in Madison Square. So we saw them sitting in line on the steps in front of Penn Station, waiting for their floor bracelet. And these girls... We walked by and there was a little group of girls, girls, young women playing Uno. And I thought, what a great idea to pass the time to play Uno with all this. So Gracie goes, mommy, look, there was a TikTok video and it's these girls. And they talk about getting a Nobel Prize breakfast and going to the hotel and strategizing their day. And then they go to me, this is Barbara Higgins. I do this whole thing about the picture because there's this building sized picture of Jack and myself. It was wonderful. I was there. It's inspiration in their muse, but it's fun to just be on some random TikTok that you don't know. So, you know, this is me. Trying to learn the navigate the ins and outs of social media, but it was fun to see. The last thing to really check up on, of course, is Jack. His growth and development changes day to day at this age. He's just so, you know, babies just grow and grow and grow. And he's so, he has the strongest personality. He's feisty and defiant. He's learned the word no, as I've said before, and he uses it. He does not use it sparingly, it's all the time. (laughs) Sometimes it's a friendly no, and sometimes it's a crabby no. And then when he's really angry, (laughs) oh, he's so. He gets so mad. It's kind of cute, but he's a snuggle muffin. And and I try to remember that I would often say I would give anything to go back and be able to snuggle Molly in bed when she was a baby one more time. And so I'm really trying to to take these days and really just enjoy them. You know, this morning I rushed around a bit late because I spent an extra 30 minutes with a snuggle monkey under the covers. And, you know, do I regret that? Oh, heck no, <laughs> not at all. He didn't want to get up even then, but Gracie came down and distracted him. It was perfect. This is season six in When I left elementary school in sixth grade and then went to high school in 10th grade, so that three-year time, as always, you leave one school, a little girl, you enter high school, a young woman or a little boy and a young man, that middle school time is big. It matters a lot and lots and lots of changes go on there and a lot happened to me during that time. By the time I entered high school, I was certainly in a much different place than I had been even one year prior. So ninth grade had been at Runlet and I had had a lot of involvement in gymnastics and that really saved me. It was my first high school year of credits and all of that. And so the summer after ninth grade is where I'll start this. Week. I leave Runlet and now it's summer and it's 1978 now. And I went to gymnastics camp again. So this was my second summer at gymnastics camp. And the camp existed in Pembroke at this place called the Conference Center. It's torn down now, but it was two big sort of dormitory style buildings with big front porches and like a little gymnasium, auditorium, room, a swimming pool, and the view is amazing. You go up Center Road, and it's a steep, steep uphill. I can't imagine running up it, and I've run up Mount Washington. It's a very steep hill. It was a blast, and it was the gymnastics camp was sponsored by the Concord Y. I've talked about that before as well. So my second summer there, I was a bit more of like a big woman on campus, so to speak. And I remember having some social issues that I didn't have the first year. Really having some some major growth. I had so many good friends at camp. And the lifeguard that year was a woman named Sally Goble. Her brother, Quentin, is in my grade, and we graduated high school together and did theater together. I remember Quentin used to play the guitar sitting out on the rock. He worked in the kitchen, I think, and Sally was a lifeguard. She was a very, very big piece of my feeling okay with myself around all of my abuse and being honest about it and all of that. And then with the remarriage of my parents, in the middle of me dealing with all the abuse stuff was just... You know, it was just tricky stuff. It was difficult and tricky. I didn't always really know how to, how to handle it. And Sally would listen to me and listen to me all the time. She would definitely laps in the morning too. I can remember going out on the front porch before breakfast, like to brush my hair or something. So one thing I remember, and I can't imagine this happening now and, and it being okay, but we were having our group picture taken and we're on the front steps and the photographer kept going like this with his arm. So if you can't see me, I'm, I'm like waving my arm above my head, like I'm waving at someone and we didn't weren't paying attention and all the counselors were up above and they had big buckets of water and they dumped buckets of water on the entire camp. And it was kind of funny, like everyone everyone got a kick out of that. But I remember it was my second summer there. And I don't remember why people thought this would be a funny joke, but somebody somebody got me to go out on a balcony and they had a big bucket of like sludge. It was like food remnants and peanut butter. It was really Really awful. And, and I have a vague memory of Annie Letterer being involved in it as well. He just got it dumped on us. And I was like mortified. Like I cried and cried and cried. And, and I don't remember why the counselors chose us. I don't know if we had been rude or done something. I don't remember. But I remember just being stunned, like just stunned. Like I didn't know what to do or how to wrap my head around what had happened. And I do remember there was some fallout from the camp director. But I look back on those kinds of things and how Part of the job of a counselor at a camp was to like harass and bully the students. And I remember doing a camp at Greenacre when I was married to Eric and I had some staff members that I had finally gotten everyone to bed and they went upstairs and scared the kids. They went running up and, you know, made believe they were ghosts. All the campers woke up. And I just looked at these two staffers like, are you kidding me? What are you thinking? I'm never going to get to sleep now. I- I'm so upset. And it was just a mindset. It was how to, how to shift the mindset from The job of the big kids is to bully and the job of the little kids is to be bullied until they're the big kids. And that brings me back to an early Molly story where we had some neighborhood, you know, all the neighborhood kids and there was a couple of families where the older siblings were really mean to the younger siblings. And I remember visiting Grimmy Bid and Papa Gordy once and their little cousin showed up and Molly was like, ooh, let's scare him. And I remember when he left asking Molly, why would you say such a thing? And she just said, well, the youngest one gets picked on. I'm finally not the youngest. And I remember having a long conversation with a little two and a half, three-year-old Molly. Just such a mind shift. And and I think sometimes it's just human nature to make the younger ones or the newer ones earn their keep and pay their dues and trouble in sometimes. But that memory just came up for me, that gymnastics camp memory, just being covered with gunk and taking a shower and crying. I remember climbing into bed, got out of bed and it was awful. And there was all these campers that thought it was so funny. It was like on the fire escape at the end of the building. Another big gymnastics camp memory I have This was a Jen Peterson one, we were sharing a room and I was on the top bunk and we're chatting away and I hear this weird noise. So I say, Jim, will you turn the light on? So she turns on the light and there are are pipes on the ceiling, heating pipes and sprinkler pipes. And there's a bat hanging upside down, like right over my face. How I didn't see that bat when I get into bed is beyond me because it was right there. You know, I jumped out of bed, that startled the bat, the bat's flying around, I'm running down the hallway, the bat's behind me. Those were some fun times. I'm only afraid of bats now if there's somebody else around that can get it for me. If I'm alone in the house and there's a bat, not a problem. I get a towel. It's, you know, but if Kenny's am like, ah, bat, doesn't make a lot of sense. But anyway, I digress. So that summer of gymnastics camp, goop beam dropped in my head, bats, talking to the lifeguard and really realizing and knowing in my heart, a gymnast I am not. I was able to increase my mobility quite a bit. I could actually do a split after like months and months. I remember getting sick and missing like 10 days of gymnastics. And it took me another three months to get my split back. That's how much mobility was an issue for me. It, remained, and it has remained that way. But I used gymnastics. Gymnastics was a lifesaver for me. It was when I was in the hospital in eighth grade that my mother said, you know, she was afraid, you know, I just stopped eating. I, I was so emotionally distraught at that age. And she thought I might, you know, try to hurt myself or end my life. And so she got me gymnastics camp and it was, a, it was two weeks, which turned into a whole summer. It gave me an unbelievable social life. So the summer after ninth grade, I went back to gymnastics camp and I had my, you know, my six weeks there and that was a blast. And then I came home and it's Concord High School. It's a whole new beast. As I mentioned in the last episode, I had tried out for soccer. I was soccer chilling, so I decided to buy saddle shoes because we wore saddle shoes. And I remember going to the first couple of practices and it was a nice group of girls. It was a fun group of girls. It was a group of girls that enjoyed cheering. We had an awful lot of fun that started. So the, the first day of school in 10th grade will stand out to me for a long time. Not just because it was the first day of actual high school for me, but because so many significant things happened that I wouldn't really realize until later. So number one is, you know, my hair did not come all right, And I went to, around the corner to Ellie's house. Ellie Doré was the neighborhood hairstylist. She had a salon in her, in her home. And so I tried to fix my hair. It wouldn't fix. She tried to fix it. Sometimes my hair was too curly for the styles that were popular then. Feathered hair was popular. Or you took a round brush and you just had this big like curl of hair down either side. And my hair just, if you've seen me, you know, my hair's all over the place right now. It's pulled back into submission. But I had this flower dress and earth shoes. <laughs> they were the popular thing. Lower in the back than the front. I don't know. So I remember going to Concord High School. And I had to bring with me my entire soccer shielding uniform because the boys team had a game the first day of school, which meant I was going to be dismissed. I didn't have to take the uniform with me the whole day. It was in like the locker room. And so I walked to school. And I remember my very first class of the day was homeroom. And I had Harvey Smith as my homeroom teacher. Harvey just passed away a few months back, maybe in the spring of this year, 2022. I spoke at his funeral. He was an unbelievable supportive person in my high school life. He just knew, and this is what I spoke about at his service, was that he just knew I was somebody that would need someone to keep an eye on them. I think he could just sense that I had a tumultuous inside. He was just wonderful to me. And so that was period one. And I remember, you know, a was first in our, his classroom was right across from the main office. The wall was glass. It looked into the hallway, which I don't know why they did that. Maybe just to put light into the hall from the classroom. I don't know. There were a couple of rooms that had glass walls on that main floor, which is now Main Street. It's called Main Street in the high school. It's a big open hallway on the first floor of the high school. It was a hallway with classrooms on either side when I was growing up. And I remember sitting there and, and he was the tennis coach. And so I had heard of him and read about him in the paper, I was excited that he was my homeroom teacher. And I, of course, couldn't stop talking. You you know, you have back then the homerooms were alphabetical. And so you always had the same people in your homeroom. And you met two or three times a quarter back then. By the end of the school year, you'd had homeroom 12 or 13 times. So you got to know the people in your homeroom. And he would end up being a a very important piece of my experience. But he, right away, my first day of school in 10th grade, Mr. Smith, he said, I'm going to have to keep an eye on you. And if you could read as fast as you talked, You could read Fountainhead in one day. He was a reading teacher, so reading jokes were good to him. And another neat little tidbit about Mr. Smith, which I didn't know at the time, is that he was an amazing coach of runners long before he coached tennis. And he coached a guy named Tom Dowling, who had been a coach when I was in high school, who died very, very early. He died in his 40s of ventricular tachycardia, a heart issue. He was the you know healthiest person ever and really, really devoted to running and to helping other runners. So all of that from this man that I did not yet know, and how many ways we would be connected, Harvey and I, and I call him Harvey now. I told a funny story at his funeral. A little boy spoke before me and referred to him as Harvey. I called him Harvey once when I was still in high school, and boy, did I, he went up one side of me and down the other, that I had not earned the respect and the right to call him Harvey, that I was Mr. Smith to him. He's remained Mr. Smith always, but we would speak at Tom's funeral together. He was an amazing public speaker, a really good orator. And he was just somebody who really, really knew knew what to say and how much to say and when to stop and all that. He was wonderful. So that was my first period of the day. And so it was a typical first day, you go from class to class to class. And they were just 45-minute classes then, not the block schedule that exists now. Lunch, of course, remained just like my daughter, Molly. I couldn't stand lunch because you walk in and it's like, what table do I sit at? And I wasn't in any particular group, so I didn't really know. I'd look here and I'd look there and I wouldn't really know where to sit. I'd go get my lunch if I got hot lunch and I'd come out just sort of stand there like a deer in the headlights until I found a place to sit. I didn't like that part of it at all. It wasn't until, I, until later that when I was running track that I felt comfortable in the cafeteria. My school year began and all my new classes and, and soccer cheerleading. So first day of school, Mr. Smith in the morning, I go along through all my classes, 45 minute classes, blah, blah, blah. And then I have the last period of the day. So as I mentioned, I had to get dismissed early because we had a beam. And the bus was leaving, I think at like 2.15 and the school day didn't end until 2.45. We had to change into our uniforms before period seven. That was what we were told to do because there wouldn't be time after school. We rode the bus with the soccer team. You can't change on the bus because there's boys there. And so I had to go down after period six into the locker room, which was off the cafeteria and change into my soccer cheering uniform. So it was a big thick white sweater with a C, turtleneck underneath, a little maroon skirt, special cheering pants. White bobby socks and saddle shoes. That's how old I am. <laughs> that was what I was wearing. And then I, and I had my big shakers, my big pom Then I had to go to bio. And this is where Science Guy comes in. So I've talked about Science Guy, I believe in the very end of season five and about how I helped the superintendent get rid of a bunch of teachers. This is where I met Science Guy. And when I showed my mother my schedule, she got very, very upset when I had this person and wanted me to switch my schedule. And of course, the minute my mother didn't want me to do something, that was all I wanted to do, right? I had this curiosity now about why she didn't like this person. And so I remember walking into the science classroom and I'm carrying all my books and I've got these two shakers and my bag of clothes. And I was in, oh my God, so skinny. And I had not started running yet. So I wasn't super muscular. I always had a muscular build and I did gymnastics. And so, you know, there was some muscle buildup there, but I was just so skinny. I'm late because I had changed and the bell had already rung. And I stand in the doorway and I walk in and everyone's looking at me because the doorway is at the front of the classroom. And there's no place to sit that I can see right away. But I'm just standing there. And what I notice right away is an upperclassman whose name escapes me right now, but was very, very popular, and very good looking. And he's in the class. He must've been taking bio again. I'm mortified now. Like, oh no, this is so embarrassing. Like, I don't want, ugh. And I just stood there. And so science guy looks over to me and says, those are the skittiest legs I've ever seen. And I just was mortified, like utterly humiliated. because. I didn't want to be skinny. I looked, like, I looked like I was 12 and it was it was horrifying. Then he saw that I was sort of horrified and he apologized. I saw, no, 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 you should be a runner. And so that was the very first time anyone had ever suggested I'd be a runner. Of course, he didn't know that I was medically excused from PE still and that I had asthma. So I sat down there and ended up being a seat right in the front of the class. And so began my sophomore year. And the fall was all wrapped up in cheering. And I loved it. We were very involved in the pep rallies and homecoming and the activities around homecoming, hall decorating. There were so many things to be involved in. And that part made me feel popular. It made me feel like I was a piece of what kept school spirit going. Like, you know, right High from Greece, you know, like kinky or something. I really enjoyed high school. I was really having a good time. My first sort of <laughs> disastrous event happened toward the end of Soccer season. I think it was the last game actually. It was a game at Pembroke Academy and a bunch of us decided we found a drink before the soccer game. So let me be clear, at this time, the drinking age was still 18 in New Hampshire, which meant half of the senior class in Concord High and a handful of juniors that had stayed back were old enough to purchase alcohol legally. And so getting alcohol was not difficult at all, because everyone had an older sibling that was 18 that would buy the alcohol. There were dances almost every weekend at the high school, and typically there were live bands that whatever club was hosting the dance would book a band, the band would play, the band would take breaks. We were allowed to leave the gym. And go outside. People got in their cars and drove away. And typically what happened during the breaks is everybody, everybody would go drink. And then we'd come back we'd go back into the dance. I look back on this now, and I'm amazed that they would let us leave. But they did. And I just think it was just, you know, the pendulum was swinging. You know, it used to be really, really strict and rigid. And then suddenly anything was okay. And then now it's closed up again. I think the pendulum goes back and forth on any issue. And When I was in high school, it was an open campus. So open. You could come and go as you pleased. You just had to be in your classes. That was it. You didn't have to check in. You know, you you had your attendance taken in your classes. I used to walk home for lunch because I had a study hall. If you had your grades up high enough, you didn't have to stay from the study hall. And so I would go home and eat lunch sometimes. So we decided we we would get drunk. And so we all met in the locker room. I don't remember the details as to how we, we left school early. So I think we all just cut our last class, quite honestly. And we went to this girl's house. I can picture her Jackson. I think it was Sandy Jackson, Sandra. Sorry, Sandra, I'm outing you. I'll be years later, we went to her house. We just passed around a bubble block and we each take a shot, pass it around. And then we drink soda or whatever, you know, typical high school drinking, just drink to get drunk. So of course, we're not being smart about the amount of alcohol. So we were hammered, hammered, hammered. And then of course, a bunch of drunk girls aren't going to keep quiet that they're drunk. So we go back to the high school and we walk up there, you know, and chewing gum or eating peanut butter sandwiches or whatever we did. And we got on the bus and we went to the game. But it was pretty obvious that we were impaired and our cheering coach showed up and was just like, what is going on here? You know, we were just trying to maintain composure. I don't, I don't remember the details of the game, but I do know that we got in huge trouble. And so we rode the bus home, we got yelled at and off we went. So all weekend long, this was a Friday night. I'm just in a panic about what may or may not happen. And sure enough, Monday I come to school and I'm in my class and I, (laughs) over the loudspeaker, Barbara Higgins, please report to the athletic director's office. So the athletic director at the time was Bill Habrick Sr., Mr. Habrick, And he had been my dad's basketball coach, you know, small town stuff. So we're sitting there. And of course, we all get brought in one by one. We have to be honest. So I didn't, I wouldn't out anyone else. I just said, yes, I admitted to drinking. And so then I got really panicked, like unbelievably panicked. And I started to have an asthma attack. My asthma was still very uncontrolled at that time. There were no preventative medicines. So I got scared. I'm like, I need to go home. Somebody needs to bring me home. So Bill Hobrick, Mr. Habrick, Jane's dad, Sr., drove me home. And so I get home and of all the days for my dad to be having a business meeting in our kitchen, going and thinking it will just be my mother or nobody. And there's like all these people. So I'm like, I burst into tears and I go running up to my room. And Mr. Harbrook had walked in the door once he realized whose child was Norm Higgins's daughter. Oh my God. And so it was a big joke, kind of funny. And, you know, I was suspended and I didn't want to be suspended. I was petrified. Mr. Harbrook said, no, just the rest of today. She'd come back tomorrow. But of course that meant I didn't earn my varsity love for cheering and I didn't, you know, I had some detentions and some punishments and, you know, it was a horrible thing to do. I look back on it. It's like, you know, and we signed sports agreements then. You weren't supposed to drink during the season. I think athletes still sign those now. And for us, if you got caught, you just were kicked off. Now I think you can earn your way back or miss a couple of games or meets or something. It's different. But that was an eye-opening experience for me. Not enough at the time. But when I look back on it, my nature for binge drinking at that time, I'm not a binge drinker anymore at all. That was really how I drank as a youngster. I just liked the feeling of being drunk and I didn't ever want to stop. I would drink and drink and drink. So that was the fall of my sophomore year. And I remember going to the awards night and you know, all these athletes and wondering what it was like to be able to be athletic. And, you know, cause I, I was nowhere near thinking about running. So not surprisingly, science guy got a big kick out of the fact that I'd gotten kicked off of the for drinking. And I remember sitting in class and and he's like, all right, everybody, who am I? And he tells us to to the side and makes believe he's drinking. And I'm just like, oh. So by now I had gotten used to his deprecating sense of humor, but, you know, it was intense. And so as fall went into winter, let me also say that I was doing gymnastics at this time. And my best friend at the time, Sally Zat, was living with us. Her family was from the North Country and had not yet moved to Concord. And she wanted to be able to access full-time gymnastics. And she went to Bishop Brady High School. And so she was living with us. She lived with us for almost whole school year. My mother had a melanoma on her rest at the time. We had, it was a really stressful year, so much, so stressful that it was going to ruin our friendship. We stayed living together. And so set, we found another place for Sally to live at the time, which made me really sad because I loved having her home. It was also a difficult thing to balance. You know, we had our own separate social lives, but we were best friends as well. And how do you put that together? So we were doing gymnastics and two of the counselors from the gymnastics camp, Jim Burke and Ken Newton, Opened a gym in Concord at the time, up on Route 106, called Jiminy Crickets. It's in the building that Salvation Army's in now. Our leotards were light blue with dark blue, v-neck, and then a little cricket. embroidered, in like sewed on a little batch. I remember I paid for this myself. I babysat. You know, I had a paper route. I got tips. I did all these things to earn money to pay for gymnastics. I think I even waitressed at weeks. I might've already started waitressing at weeks then, and I would use my tips. Yeah, because I was 15. But I had asthma. I can remember so many times just lying on my stomach, at the gym at night wheezing. And I think some of it was the gym made me wheeze. Keep in mind, all all you asthmatics listening, there was no such thing as albuterol yet. The only inhalers that existed were primatine mist, which was this over-the-counter horrifying. It burned your lungs. It didn't help you breathe really at all. So I took pills. There was like preventative pills to take. But really the only way I could avoid wheezing was to stay away from anything that I was allergic to. And So gymnastics slowly but surely just became something I couldn't do. And so I finally just quit. I just stopped. I think I stopped you know, November or December of, of my sophomore year of high school. So now I wasn't doing anything. I mean, any organized sport. And that wasn't me at all. I had always, always done things. And when I look at, look at it now, my involvement in athletics is often what I call now a trauma pattern. Meaning, like I look back to when the abuse first started in my life and I very quickly joined as many things as I could. So I had piano lessons. Violin lessons in chorus and choir and Girl Scouts. And then at night I had swim team and you know, anything athletic as a child bothered me asthma-wise because again, there was there was no prophylactic medicine to prevent the wheezing from happening in the first place. And allergy shots hadn't really come about yet to lessen the allergy. So these illnesses aren't as life-altering as they were when I was growing up. And so all through elementary, you know, and I'll get to that someday. You know, I was busy all the time. And then middle school what became was gymnastics. And that's what that became. And I was involved in clubs and things at school. I just could not go home, just go home and do nothing. It was like a a mind thing for me. I cross country skied in the winter. I hiked, went downhill skiing. I was just out of the house as much as possible, just to be busy and to be away. So when gymnastics ended for me, that had been like from telling my mother about the abuse to having a really rough eighth grade to then joining gymnastics and having you know a year all of ninth grade and then half of tenth and realizing I'm not a gymnast and, and I'm not having fun anymore. Jiminy crickets eventually became Granite State Gymnastics and Jim and his wife Diane ran it for years and years. Like they retired really relatively recently. I remember in the winter of my sophomore year really struggling to find a friend group. Where do I sit in? All of my gymnastics friends still did, did gymnastics. And so I really I was really floundering around and I didn't quite know what to do. I had I had something like my friend Kathleen Sullivan we had German together, so I was, I was still friends with Kathleen. And I would lean on her so much. Oh my gosh, I just, I just wanted to be popular so much. And Deb Stanley, so she was Debo and then, and she and I had a friendship that we didn't hang out a ton, but we would often do things together. And in middle school, we had been in a couple of like social groups together. And so we had connected and become friendly that way. So these were people that, were still, that I was still friends with, but not on a day-to-day basis. And I really have to struggle to think who I hung out with in my sophomore year because it was all prior to running. And once I started running, that really took over my life. One thing I did start doing, you know, is I I began to get very, very connected to and sucked into science guys. So this is a teacher who's in his early thirties. He was oftentimes in his classroom after school. So I would spend time there. I I would sometimes just sit and do my homework. It was putting off going home. I didn't want to go right home. Oftentimes when I went home, I would have to watch my younger brother and sister. And as much as I love them, I didn't want to watch my younger brother and sister. My mother worked evenings and my father was pretty invisible. He would disappear in the, into his basement office and, you know, I'm supposed to be in charge of everybody. So I found I found that to be not pleasant. And so I would hang out in his classroom. I joined the yearbook. He was the yearbook advisor. And so, oh, okay, here's a way I can stay at school longer. And we began to, you know, spend time with somebody and he had a tendency to, you know, date students. So again, these kinds of people know the kinds of young people that will respond to whatever it is they're offering. And I wasn't the first, nor was I the last. And a couple of younger people had long-term relationships with him, relationships that lasted after they left high school, two that come to mind right away whose names I'm not going to tell their stories. But it was significant. And if I talked about him too much at home, my mother got very, very irritated. What she didn't know was that I would often take rides home from him and sometimes we would drive around and talk. And he had an apartment that he stayed in sometimes that was just right behind where I lived. So, you know, I lived, I lived right near Watts park in that neighborhood and like two streets behind my house was a little side street and he had an apartment there, which I didn't know at the time. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, I could sneak out of my house at night or I could say I'm going someplace and not, and not be really going there. Started to spend a significant amount of time with him. This is significant because one of the biggest things now that I'm often spoken to about when I'm coaching in a public school or or even just friends who look out for me is that I, I get very close to pe- people very quickly. People are always like, boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. I have never in a hundred million years crossed a boundary romantically or sexually ever. That makes me ill that adults would hurt students. I have, ugh, it makes my neck hairs crawl. But I do jump into families and, and get close and try to help and be a, a mentor to kids and all this. And I see that this behavior with me you know, started on the other side of the coin where somebody was crossing into my area and I didn't know how to set boundaries and keep people away. It's been an issue for me my whole entire life. The sad part about this, quite honestly, is that sometimes it's a, it's an athletic coach or a teacher who a student will reach out to if there's a situation at home an a of situation or whatever, or sometimes young people's biggest mentors are their teachers and their coaches. And they don't get that way from staying behind a desk and being all business-like all the time sometimes those relationships are close. And the sad part about people like Science Guy is that their abuse of this closeness ruins it for all those teachers and coaches and musical directors and conductors and instructors and all of those people that really love kids and love when a student comes and hangs out in their classroom two or three times a week after school. A lot of that stuff you can't do now. When I was coaching cross country in Bow, I got spoken to for driving kids in the car. Well, if I have a girl that twists her ankle on the side of the road, I'm certainly not going to leave her there. I'll put her in my car and bring her back to school. I would go out and check on them on their runs. I had a girl throw up. She had heat stroke. And I would always run right back into the athletic director's office and say, I had so-and-so in my car alone. She sprained her ankle. She's at the trainers. I had so-and-so in my car alone. She threw up. She has a fever. Her mom's on the way. And I got spoken to about this. So, you know, I felt that that put me in a really awkward position. How do you not bring a student back when they're unsafe? Am I supposed to call their mother and wait 45 minutes while the rest of the team is now approachless? So anyway, I digress a bit, but in this kind of behavior where you have teachers, and I don't mean to be gender specific, but it's really predominantly male teachers to female students and any adult that takes advantage of a child is out of mine. So I was 15 and science guy was 33. So legally, I don't even know what the laws were in 1979 when this was all happening, 78, 79, but I imagine he could have gotten in trouble just regardless. So the other piece is that he had a reputation of being this way. This wasn't unknown to people. And I had other people that said, now be careful. If a teacher had that reputation now, they wouldn't exist in the school. Or so you'd think. Pay attention to the Concord School District and the Howie Leung situation a few years ago. That's in post molly reality time. That's how recent all of that was. Here was a teacher that a lot of people had concerns about and nobody said anything. Or people did say things and they were yelled at, or a student spoke out and got a detention or a suspension and, you know, it was just ugly. So here this is 1979, and I have a number of adults who tell me to be careful. I remember getting called into my guidance counselor's office because she had heard that I was spending a lot of time there and she did the same thing. She warned me. Imagine the dynamic where you have adults warning children about other adults you know, science guy taught for another 17 years after after me. <laughs> there were things about him going around and around and around all the time. So when I think of winter of, of my sophomore year, I think of science guy. And that was how I took up time and kept myself out of my house. I also hung out with Kathleen quite a bit. Consumption of alcohol became a bigger part of my reality, which we all did. As I said before, I didn't drink all the time, but on the weekends, it was always fun if we could find someone to buy us beer and, could you know, drive around and drink it. <laughs> I have some of those stories that will come a bit later, but I went to parties. My older brother, Rick, had just graduated and he was, had moved away for a while and then was back home. So a lot of his friends were seniors. Some of the friends, you know, that were still in high school. And so there were parties and it was going to parties. And I lived in a neighborhood right near White's Park where Tony Andrews had tons of parties. You know, it was just, just like party central, Jack Frazier. And we had a good time. I have to say it was very classic, the 70s, early 80s, you know, canoodling cake parties. Year was the alcohol of choice. So it was at this time that, in order to spend time with science guy, I would oftentimes go to track meets. He was the indoor track coach, and so I remember riding the bus once, and you know there was like only eight girls on the track team. And they're like, "What are you doing?" And, and I just said, well, "I'm interested in track. I thought I'd come watch a track meet." Now UNH, all sweet oval, had a dirt infield at the time, so you get you know 250 high school kids in there, and it was just like a dust bowl. You couldn't see the other side. It ultimately was why I never ran indoor track because there was no way, as Nasmatic I could have. Even with all the medicines that I now had, I couldn't have survived that. So I went and watched and I thought, well, maybe I'll be a high jumper because that's what Maureen Ferns did. And I had fun watching it. And I just remember, I just remember all the subtleties, you know, the hand on a shoulder for a long period of time. As a very struggling, socially skinny, feeling ugly all the time, 10th grader, all of this was unbelievably flattering to me. And it made me feel like I mattered and then I had value. He made me feel that way. And, you know, this is where sexual abuse and sexual assault gets tricky. The 15-year-old 10th grader, it really was out of my realm to be put in this position. As a 33-year-old teacher, it was completely wrong for him to act this way toward me. Even if I stood in front of him and jumped up and down and begged him and, you know, acted inappropriately, which I did not, he would still have the legal obligation to back away. It's not right. A, he's a teacher and B, he's an adult. And I was legally not an adult, not even close. This is how the winter went along. And I started really inventing different reasons to leave my house. So winter starts to turn into spring and Science Guy has an idea that I should go out for spring track. Now, keep in mind, I'm very asthmatic and running spring track is, is nowhere in my radar. But there are lots of events in track. Now, I'm skinny, but I thought, oh, I could sprint. You don't have to run too far. And then you're done running and then go weaves in peace. There are throwing events in long jump and triple jump and high jump. So there were things I could do that maybe wouldn't have triggered my asthma so much. But I went out for track because he was the assistant coach. And I knew that I would be the same every day. And it would be a much more logical, acceptable way to see one another. We had started having little pet names for one another, like little code names, so that if he said that code name, I knew that it meant that he loved me or whatever, which is awkward and odd. He convinced me to do spring track, and he, you know, he said, "With those skinny legs, you'll be the best runner I've ever." And I had no, I had no inkling that I would even like it or that I would be good at it. I did it. I signed up. I went to the sign-up meeting and got all the paperwork. And I remember my mom and dad was just like, "No, no, no, you can't. Don't do it." Around this time, a new medicine came out. It was called chromaline sodium. And it was a little white capsule with powder in it. And you put it in this little plastic thing called a spinhaler. And you twisted it and two little holes were poked into the capsule. And then you breathed the powder down into your lungs. So a lot of times it would just stick in the back of your throat. And I started using that. I'd do it in the morning and at night. And it wouldn't stop you from wheezing, but it it was supposed to prevent it from happening. At about the same time, Ventolin inhalers came out. And that's the brand name for albuterol. Everyone knows what albuterol is now. The number of people who have albuterol inhalers. I was the only one with an inhaler out of everyone I knew. No other asthmatics in my life. And now I remember coaching track and half my team had inhalers. So this was life-changing for me because every morning I would do the, I would do the albuterol, which would open my lungs up. And then I would take that spin inhaler thing. So I got ready for spring track. The track started March 19th. It was a Monday, 1979. On March 17th, I went to a St. Patrick's Day party at Sarah Eberhardt's house. Her parents didn't know she was having it. (laughs) I'll never forget. I was wearing blue flats and I ran all the way home because I didn't have a ride home and it was dark out and I was afraid, so I sprinted. And I remember when I got home, I didn't wheeze, which was was amazing. One of the side effects of my asthma, if I was wheezing in my sleep, I would dream. And I was a waitress at week's time. My dream would be that I was running around trying to serve people and I couldn't keep up with the order. And I'd wake up and I'd be having an asthma attack. The month of March 1979, Easter was during that month, I remember. And I remember we had I had Easter dinner at my Grammy Higgins's and then I said I'll walk home. And I walked by the apartment that he was staying in and I visited for a while. He had kissed me. I don't know, I don't know that we had done too much otherwise, but I mean, you know, you're lying on a couch kissing somebody. That's pretty significant when you're 15 and they're more than twice your age. I didn't know what I was feeling. And my only experience with anything sexual was abusive. And so I didn't feel like this was abusive, even though in the big picture, it is. You're being groomed into something that you think you're supposed to like or that you think is okay. I never didn't like it. You know, that's the issue. But, you know, looking back on it now, I, I just see how much it affected my life later on. So March for me was running. And I remember I did, I went running. I ran like a mile and a half one day I went to the track and I ran some laps. I'd run and walk and run and walk and I could do okay. I wheezed, I definitely wheezed and I would have to stop and walk a lot. But I wanted to just do it. So I remember the very first day of track, I handed in my forms, my paperwork. I remember Coach Liddy was the head coach and he was collecting everything. And he goes, who are you? And I said, I'm Barbara Higgins. And he goes, well, what can you tell you about yourself? And I said, I'm going to be a star. And I didn't know I was going to be a star, but I just, I just that's what I said. And so that was the first day of spring track. So I tried every event. (laughs) I tried shot put. I think I threw it 13 feet. A good shot putter can throw it like 38 feet. I tried javelin. I couldn't even make the thing I couldn't even know. This kiss, I couldn't make it out work either. My hands weren't big enough and I just didn't understand. I tried hurdles. Now I did well at hurdles. I went to the hurdles clinic and I remember a science guy said to me after after practice that Coach Lydia said, boy, she's a natural. But when I was in high school, it was only, there was one hurdles race. My sophomore year running, it was still 80 yard low hurdles. So it wasn't even a hundred meters. There was no 300 meter hurdles for girls in high school back then. The boys had it, but the girls didn't. <laughs> So had there been something I made of hurdles, I may have actually been more of a hurdler early on. I tried everything. And I remember after the first like week of trying every event, coach Ludie goes, why don't you go work out with the distance runners? And I remember the very first day of practice, he said, if you're a returning athlete and you're a sprinter jumper thrower, come this way. If you're new or you're a distance runner, go with with the assistant coach. And so that's where I went because I was new. And so we did Brady Loop that day. And I'll never forget, I had to walk like 10 times. I was last. I had a little group of girls. And so that was fine. I was excited. I was doing a sport. I remember when uniforms were handed out and I just felt like, oh my gosh, I have a uniform. I just so much wanted to fit in. And so those first three or four weeks of sprint track before we had any races, all of a sudden it started to click with me that I maybe could be, would be a pretty good runner. We were doing distance runs. We actually did workouts like around White's Park. We didn't go onto the track much in the beginning. And I remember we did a workout around White's Park where we did repeat miles. And the first time we did it, I, I was like nine minutes. 10 minutes, nine minutes, maybe 8.50. And those were hard for me, but I didn't wheeze, And I would come home every day and every day my mother would say, how'd it go today? And I'd say, fine. And then I'd walk into the living room and my dad would say, how'd it go today? And I'd say, fine. And some days I wheeze, And oh, I wheezed like four times today or I had to stop or I had to use my inhaler. It was just something new for me. And I was loving the new people I was meeting. I was meeting a whole new group of people. So two significant things happened. We did that work about again, maybe a week later, maybe 10 days later. And I went from nine minutes to like 6.45 going around the park. And I was with, ahead of everybody except Nanette Tremblay. She was ahead of me. So we ended up training together a lot. But, and I remember science guy being like, what am I looking at? Oh my God. And so I started to think maybe I could be good at this. The other thing was a five mile run. And I've talked about this run before. I, I was with my my friends in the back and I suddenly just felt really good. And it was a feeling I'd never had. I think it might be runner's high. I just started passing people and catching up and I caught up to the really fast group on Via Tranquilla. And I remember the coach was like, what are you doing here? You know, and like, I don't know, I feel really good. And, you know, and that was that. I suddenly knew that I was a runner and then came, you know, the first meet. And I know I've talked about this in my, in season one when I talked about freaking five in the mile. We had a meet against Hanover. We had like an inter-squad meet and I ran just over six minutes for the mile. And then in that meet, I ran 5.49. So it took like 20 seconds off my time. And Coach Ludi was just beside himself. And, you know, so every every meet, every race, I got faster and faster, and of course, that accelerated the romantic connection between science guy and myself. Because, you know, he was an amazing runner when he was in college, and you know, so he he knew a good runner when he saw one. And so, part of him, obviously, this person is a broken person if if the loves of their life are, you know, something wasn't right, something was off in his life. He desperately wanted to prove that he was, you know, worthy in all of this. I, I look back at that now and I see it. I remember words, you know, things that he said, he was like a 408 miler. I mean, he was a good runner. And so he was just so excited. Like I knew it, I knew it. And so I just got better and better and better. And at the end of that year, I ended up placing fourth in class L's, fifth in state, sixth in New England. So I was like top six in every championship race I ran. And I, you know, 12 weeks prior, I had not run a step. And 12 weeks prior to that, I was still an untreated asthmatic. So it was an incredible, talk about a change from January 1st, 1979 to June, when I was, you know, June 14th or whatever, when it was New England's. Another significant event that spring that ties together is I went to Germany with the German club. And so Steve McManus and me and Kathleen Sullivan, Mary Geruso, Meryl Garrett, we had so much fun. The whole group of us went. Of course, there's tons of drinking in Germany. And so I had a blast. It was like a Bavarian spring. We went to Austria as well. I went to the Shadow Music House. And so I saw so many things. It was a quick, quick week. But I really missed Science Guy while I was gone. And I was keeping a journal. And Kathleen saw it. She's like, what am I looking at here? And I just had to try to, because I, you know, I didn't really want anyone to know. At the same time, I wanted to tell everybody because you know, everyone's talking about their boyfriends and girlfriends. And I'm just sort of sitting there. I have no boyfriend. I have no girlfriend. You know, I'm the skinny girl. Now, as the spring goes along, I suddenly had a cafeteria table to sit at because all the track people, with every race I ran and every race I won, I won many of these, of these dual meets and I'm scoring points and I'm earning a varsity letter and this was huge for me, just huge. If you all think back to high school and how much you want to matter and succeed. And in the meantime, what brought me there is a very unhealthy, criminal level relationship. Talk about my life. I don't know, everything good has bad tied in with it, and everything bad has good tied in with it. Had I not had that relationship, I would never have considered going off the track at all. It just isn't something I would have tried. I didn't have an interest in running necessarily, and I had asthma. So I would never have considered spring track. So that was a very, very amazing spring for me. I traveled to a foreign country. I joined a team. I was good at it. I became one of the top performers on that team. I made it to New England. I got to go to the New England meet. It was an amazing, amazing experience for me. And that was during that spring of 1979, before I even turned 16, was when I had sex for the first time. And it was not with a high school boyfriend. Was it traumatizing to me? Not in the sense that, you know, I was forced and held against the wall or hurt or anything like that. No, no. But, you know, when I was asked, do you want to do this? Do you want to do it? Do you want to? I didn't know what to say. I mean, I'd only been asked like once or twice in my entire life, do you want to? And it was with, with you know, boys my age, like at a big party and everyone's drunk or something. I had no trouble saying no, because I didn't want to at all. I didn't feel confident. It wasn't like I had been dating somebody or with them, you know, just your, your standard sort of. Hookup line. We didn't have a name for it back in the 70s. So, when it came right down to, and I don't want to go into details about it, we were together. It was a Sunday afternoon. We had access to an empty house. I went to visit. You know, we're kissing and one thing leads to another. And do you want to? And so I just said yes. And I don't know. I didn't, I don't know what I thought. And even as an adult now, looking back on it, I have such a hard time wrapping my head around where I was at. It hurt, of course. It always hurts, I think, for girls. I remember thinking the whole thing looked ridiculous. Like people do this; they think this is sexy. I remember just being really outside of myself. Talk about stepping outside of myself. And I remember walking home after and wondering if my mother would notice because she always said she would notice, and she didn't. You know, dinner was normal, and I just had all of this swirling around in my head. I used birth control, so you know, you know, when you look at consent and all that goes into consent, I did that whole "the vagina is a kitchen" and all the cookies. This is one of those things where I didn't say no because. Hey, I didn't know how to say no. I didn't really want to say no. I didn't want to say yes either. And that's because I was a child. You know, it wasn't something that like there's a part of me that knew it was wrong. But think about an abused child. All I knew about sex was that it was wrong. Because when you're little and somebody's doing something to you, they shouldn't. They tell you, don't tell. And if you're not supposed to tell them, you know it's wrong. So that drives you. I'll go back to the book, The Body Keeps the Score, and how trauma victims recreate their trauma because it's where they feel most comfortable. So I didn't enter into a healthy, solid relationship. If I had choice in this matter, when I was you know, sort of reached out to and flirted with and all, with somebody that I shouldn't be with, that was as big a draw to me as the fact that somebody that I thought was handsome was interested in me. You know, it should have been a high school student. It should have been someone my age, right? So the other piece is that it doesn't take long for rumors to fly. It must have been very obvious to a lot of my friends and the boys in my grade that I was with this guy because there were times when I sort of liked somebody in my junior and senior years and they would be like, well, why would you want to be with us when you were with a guy, like a grown man? And all of the things that go into really ruining your high school experience or just taking away any sense of normalcy. So, you know, I entered 10th grade. My earth shoes and my little cotton dress and my soccer cheering pom-poms and my asthma. And I went through getting kicked off a team and I went through quitting gymnastics, realizing, you know, and I didn't like to quit anything. And then falling in love with is what I thought. I thought that I was in love with this man all through the winter and then joining spring track and then realizing I was an amazing runner. You know, I'll, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget the state meet, which was in Concord that year. And all these people that I knew and all these runners that I didn't know that I would come to know the owner of a running store named Jay Cole, who dated all through high school. We'll talk about that in a minute or next episode, not now. But when I think of the beginning of 10th grade to the end of 10th grade, far better, far better at the end of 10th grade, I had found a passion. Another piece of abuse and assault is that you, you really hate your body. And I still, to this day, can have a thought go in my head and I shudder. Sexual abuse and what it does to your hardwired circuits, lifetime thing. I think that it You know, it can be, it can be managed. It can be, some people deal with it better. We're all just different as human beings. But when you look at the hierarchy of needs and and our basic drives as human beings, sexual drive is not sinful. It's not, you know, against God, God gave us all of this. And, you know, you look back to humans not surviving, a sexual drive caused you to sleep with somebody which made you have a baby and we keep the population going. It's much more than that now. It's not just about procreation. It's about showing love and commitment to somebody. It's about sharing yourself completely with somebody that you love. And when your first experience from when you're too little to even know what's going on to figuring out how bad it is, and that's the chunk of time, age seven to age like thirteen. Now what do you do? You're told not to tell anyone about it because nobody will understand. And so there's no guidance. As much as I went to therapy, no one ever just sat me down and said, Here's how you're gonna feel and here's what might come up for you. When I spoke to that girl, the one that came to me about her teacher, I explained to her how troubling that was. Because somebody just explained to me after being abused what I might do. But she had a lot of that in her past as well. Unbelievable the things that you learn after you go through something like this. So I finished my sophomore year and I'm a championship runner. I'm in the newspaper and I get athlete of the month. Manchester union leader makes me athlete of the month. And and I have this attention that I never, ever, ever dreamed I would have. And suddenly I was popular. I hung out with the jocks, right? So at athletic events and different sports, I just go into all the games and And why not? I mean, it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful way to be. And so that was my 10th grade year. And that's how I got into running. In the time that I talked about when 15 years later, when I had to get a restraining order and all of those terrible things, in this card that science guy wrote, he talked about one of the greatest things was me as a runner. And it was, and it's tied into a really ugly, nasty relationship that really had no business existing. I mean, the relationship itself, well, it became ugly, but I'll get into that in other episodes. But that's it. So now y'all know how I lost my virginity. It was kind and it wasn't mean-spirited, but what grown man does that with a child? I, I don't know. And if we lined up 30, 15-year-old girls, <laughs> most of them would look pretty young. Some, you know, some looked older than their years, but still, you know, 15, I, I still slurped my ice cream. I still slurped my frats through the straw. I still made noises when I ate. You know, I still had a messy room. I don't know. I didn't know what I was doing. It was all-consuming. And I remember the summer of 1979 was a big running summer. I ran in a running club and I met all of these adults. I hung around a lot with adults, which was a blessing and a curse then as well, because it gave me a chance to be with Science Guy, again, in the running community, but it was awkward and odd. And where were my friends? You know, None of my friends joined a running club. I ran road races all summer. It was intense, but that, I'll leave all of that the details of that summer for the next episode I work my way through. So my key things here, what I really was, getting at is the piece of the body keeps the score where we try to recreate our trauma because it's where we feel most comfortable. And so my abuse wasn't painful. I was never hurt. I was often asked if I wanted it to stop and I would always say yes, you know, or I would just say, I'm tired. I want to sleep now. I wouldn't answer any other questions. Oftentimes my abuser would ask me questions and I just believe I was asleep, but I didn't know how to say no. So I just stayed perfectly still and waited and waited and waited. And and then when I have finally have some power, I didn't realize I had any power. Like I just felt like if he was ready to do it and we were ready to make love and cross that bridge, then a science guy and I should do it. And so we did. You know, I look back on it now, I've learned a lot. It has definitely formulated the kind of mother I have been and was with Gracie and Molly, always very open and comfortable about it. And if Gracie can't come to me with something, I just make sure she has somebody that she can go to so that she isn't facing these things by herself, so that she gets multiple perspectives on a decision so that she does the right thing. So that's how I started running. I fell in love with a guy more than twice my age, who was my teacher, and he happened to coach track. And so I wanted to hang out with him more. So I joined the track team and became a great runner. That's my story. The last little thing I'll say before I end, there's a book called The Silence of Great Distance, and it talks about female distance runners and the number of female distance runners who were sexually abused as children. I think the reason we run so well is we have the ability to step out of our bodies. Any of you listening who have been sexually abused or beaten, you know, like child abuse, any kind of physical pain or physical discomfort knows that you have to step out of it. You have to step away while it's happening so that you survive it. And the other piece is you hate your bodies. And I will say, as much as I still didn't like my body in high school, teal, boobs, no butt, standing on the starting line of a race in a track uniform, I felt beautiful because I was the fastest runner on the line. And it was the first time that I really felt okay about my soul house living in my body. And I've talked about how lucky I am to be able to feel that way. So that's it. Let's do a better job of vetting our teachers and protecting our students and listening to people when they talk. As always, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Make sure to do something really good for yourself before you do something really good for someone else. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Times Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at Barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.